Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. In this episode, we chat with Jed Schneiderman, co-founder and president of Tapped Mobile, a mobile-focused ad tech solutions company. Media and tech weren't always part of Jed's story. He started in the garment industry before making the jump to CPG powerhouse Procter & Gamble. His professional media career kicked off at AOL. This was back when dial-up subscribers were just as important as ad sales. Jed's held senior roles at Digital Cement, Echo Marketing, Bell Media, and Microsoft, where he helped launch the Bing search engine to the Canadian market. Jed, you're the co-founder and president of Tapped Mobile. Uh, give us the Coles notes of what Tapped Mobile is. We're a mobile marketing agency. Uh, we specialize in connecting online and offline. And what that means in English is that we try to help advertisers and brands connect with consumers on their phone. Let's go back to the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Montreal, Quebec. And what was life like growing up in Montreal? Well, I left when I was two, so <laughs> I don't have much recollection of that other than good hockey and good bagels. Growing up in Toronto, frankly, was great. Um, I grew up in an awesome household. Um, it was stable. Um, I, I had sort of every opportunity, and I have very fond memories. What brought the family from Montreal to Toronto? Uh, my parents were Anglophones who had gone to school in Montreal, and when they finished all of their schooling, found jobs in Toronto. Growing up, did you have any role models or anyone that influenced you? My role models were actually pretty close to home. It was my dad, um, who is still alive and who is 83 and still works full time. And it was both my grandparents, um, both who were entrepreneurs and both who worked very hard throughout their entire lives. And I think showed me the value of hard work and the correlation between hard work and success. You said your dad's 83 and he's still working? Yes. That's that incredible. What does he do? Don't hold it against me. My dad is a psychiatrist. Okay, so he's still booking patients. He's still got a, a working practice and everything like that? Very much so, yes. And you mentioned your grandparents were entrepreneurs. I find that interesting because from that generation, it seemed like if you wanted to make a dollar, you had to find a way to do it yourself. So what did your grandparents do? My one grandfather ran a store uh, with my grandmother. So uh, it was a husband and wife team. And my other grandfather uh, actually worked in the fur business and then later in the real estate business. So how did that take you towards wanting to be in media? I was always fascinated by media, probably from a consumer-facing standpoint. I, I liked marketing. I think I grew up in the 70s and 80s watching television, and I was always intrigued by television and sort of the combination with marketing. And when I went to business school... Um, one of a few fields that actually drew me in was marketing as opposed to finance or strategy or operations. That's funny because you had an interesting path to that. You started out at the University of Western Ontario and you said your first media gig was actually on air. It was, and I nearly got fired. Um, I was a news broadcaster at CHRW, which was the campus radio station. And this was a very long time ago. We used to get uh, stories fed to us off of the wire, which printed out on a dot matrix printer. And I doubt that many of your listeners have either seen a dot matrix printer or even know what it is. Maybe they've heard a dot matrix printer. Because <laughs> even if you haven't seen one, you've heard it. Right. You've seen it at the airport when they print off something behind the desk. In any event, um, a friend and I read the news on Monday nights 
at I believe it was both nine and ten o'clock at night, and I think other than my roommates, I'm not sure anyone listened, but did that for a couple years. Did you ever have aspirations of being an on-air talent? I did at one point, as you can tell with what I'm doing here, but I was absolutely freaked of getting a job and then getting fired and not being able to find a second job. You and I were at a conference last week, Digital Day, and you made a comment about a CMO wanting to protect their job. If you're the CMO of a bank and you get fired, everyone knows that there is no other job for you. So that's kind of the paranoia I carried with. I knew that I was of limited talent when it came to the radio. I nearly got fired for bursting out in laughter on one episode. And as I said earlier, I was quite convinced that no one listened. It happened to be that one night our general manager was listening. So I barely held on to my job. Ultimately, I didn't think I was very good. I did enjoy it. And I think quite like you, near the end of your university career, you do worry about getting a full-time gig and paying the bills. And I didn't think it was a, a very lucrative career, albeit there were a handful of folks who had gone to my university at the time, Dan Shulman, Elliot Friedman, both who've made very successful careers by being in front of the camera and on radio. Um, I just wasn't as talented as either one of them. Don't forget Alex Trebek. He's another Western alumnus. Ah, there you go. Alex Trebek. Hi, Alex, if you're listening. But when you were at Western, you weren't studying broadcasting, let alone marketing. You were a philosophy major. Why that path? So I'll give you two answers, one which is slightly more poetic and plays better for a public audience. I, 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 the other is the, the honest one. I, I liked um, the school of thought or I, I liked the methodology of just asking a lot of questions and pouring through issues. Um, I just found it more interesting versus memorizing formulas or memorizing dates. So I found it to be slightly more... Uh, analytical, and frankly, just it fed my curiosity. The real truth, though, is it had the fewest number of hours of classes per week, and I think that's what attracted me to the department. That's true, liberal arts. I mean, you probably got, what, 8 to 12 hours a week when you're looking at your science counterparts with labs 24 hours a week? I think you hit it perfectly, <laughs> yes. But even though you had a few number of hours a week, you decided to go back and do your MBA. Did you do that right after your undergraduate or did you work for a couple of years? I worked for three years in between and then I decided the time was right to go back and do an MBA. Most of the schools at the time required some form of work experience. And so after I had done that, I decided to go back and do an MBA. Where did you work in between? Like what was your first gig at a university? It was in human resources at a women's clothing manufacturer. Nothing to do with uh, media in any way. What would you say is your first media gig, notwithstanding uh, the on-air job or the radio job at Western? Well, I worked in marketing um, at Procter & Gamble, which was after business school. But I think from a pure media standpoint, it was at AOL. This is back in the day where they had just merged with Time Warner and they were operating largely as an internet service provider here in Canada, but they did have a lot of media assets. We're talking early 2000s at this point, right? Yeah, we're talking 2001 to 2003, so about 15, 16 years ago. Was that at the time when they started to sort of get on shaky ground? They were probably in the news for all the wrong reasons, layoffs, or was that were you there just before that? No, it was it was not an easy time. It was the I mean, it had it was still a fairly large company, but at the time, the core offering was an internet service provider that was. Uh, or an ISP that was provided over dial-up. They were more competitive in the U.S. because they had owned 
AOL Time Warner, which gave them a high-speed infrastructure. But in Canada, it was purely dial-up, and everyone was moving to high speed. So we were selling a horse and buggy, and everyone was moving to a car. Was this back in the day, and some of the older listeners will know this, when they were still giving away floppy disks and CDs with the free newspapers, 12 hours free per month or 14 hours free? Oh, yeah, it was. In fact, the best offer was 90 days free per month. That was the one that did the best. I wasn't... I, I was part of the marketing team that was involved in those activities, and yeah, that was a core part of the outreach from the marketing department. Was this at the time that they killed the name America Online and just went AOL, kind of like what K- Kentucky Fried Chicken did with KFC? Very good memory. They, yeah, they actually did. They went to um, AOL, and then locally we went to AOL Canada. It's kind of weird when you think about it. America Online Canada it doesn't fit very well. No, but I think when you just go to AOL, I think people probably forget what AOL ever stood for. And then I guess the rest is history. Tell me about your time at P&G, though. You said you weren't in media there. You were in marketing. I'm curious as to what brands you looked after. Going to Procter was probably the best move of my career, both personally and professionally. It was effectively a second MBA. I worked on a number of brands in a number, a number of categories. Initially, I worked on hair care, and as a guy who's follically challenged, there's some irony in that. <laughs> um, I worked on a brand called Perp Plus, which is no longer owned by Procter. After that, I worked on Cheer and Downy, so in the laundry category. And then when I was last there, I worked on the cosmetics portfolio, which included CoverGirl and Max Factor. Again, um, both brands have been since sold off by Procter to Cody Cosmetics. Talk to me a bit about your time on CoverGirl. That's not a product that you use at all. I kind of like, hmm. when I, no, but when I hear someone say, I worked on CoverGirl, I don't use CoverGirl, it'd kind of be like the head of marketing for General Motors saying, I don't have a license. So, I mean, was it a little bit more difficult for you working on that, more of a challenge because you didn't use the product? Did you find you had to lean on your brand associates or assistants a little bit more? I think you can look at it two ways. I think, um, yeah, I do think there are certain subjective advantages to knowing a category at a very, very sort of personal level. I think you can bring some insight to the table. The reality, though, is that when you don't know a category very well, you're forced to ultimately be more disciplined in your approach because you have to rely on data and research. And yeah, to a certain extent, I do think you have to rely on other colleagues, although there there were other people on the portfolio that didn't use CoverGirl, both male and female. So, I mean, the fallback ultimately is the disciplined marketing approach that Procter brings to the table. And I think that experience being both divorced from the category and not using it, I think that experience holds me in good stead today because it allows you to tackle a market or a brand or a product without using it and still sort of figure out the best way of growing it, um, i.e. growing the business or growing the brand. Up until that point, you had an extremely accomplished career, and then you did something that a lot of people in your position wouldn't do. You took time off to go traveling. You quit. I did. Yep. I went traveling with uh, my wife for six months. What was that like? What drove that? Because a lot of people would have difficulty walking away from what you had built for yourself or your career. Yeah, I think my career probably was mediocre at best as opposed to great at that point. I got to be honest, looking at your resume, a lot of people would kill for what you had up until that point. Yeah, I mean, things look good on paper. I mean, I think I would work for two really great companies. I think I had worked for some great people, folks that I'm still in touch with today. You know, you, you, you get certain opportunities and certain windows in life. Um, 
having, as we discussed earlier, effectively only spent my time in Canada. I think getting out of Canada is a good thing. There are a lot of very accomplished people at senior marketing jobs that have worked in the US, have worked in Europe and Asia and other parts of the world. For me, at a strictly personal level, we thought that going away and traveling for six months would be a great experience. And looking back on it, I've got zero regrets. I, I put that up in sort of like the top three or four things that I've ever decided to do in my life. Um, and one that I'm quite happy with uh, in terms of both the experience and the outcome. Really quickly, where did you go? What did you see? What stood out for me from that six months? I, we don't have enough time to go through all of that. We hiked in Nepal for a month. We saw uh, the Taj Mahal in India because we were there for a month. We went to Bangkok. We went to Thailand. We went to Myanmar, um, Vietnam, and Cambodia. And there were some pretty rich experiences in each one of those. Overall, the impression was um, pretty memorable. When you came back, though, was there something, was there a job waiting for you, or did you kind of have to restart again? I had to restart. I mean, at that time, I had worked for two foreign companies. Both AOL and Procter were U.S.-owned, even though they had sizable Canadian operations. Um, I decided I wanted to work for a privately held Canadian company, and then I also wanted to work on agency side so as to get a better flavor for sort of like the full marketing ecosystem. Where did you land when you got back? I worked at a really great company called Digital Cement. Tell us about your time at Digital Cement. Yeah, DC or Digital Cement was a great company. They built out um, digital marketing programs, digital CRM for companies like Kraft, Dell, Federal Express, the NBA or the National Basketball Association. And I worked on the Kraft uh, CRM program. And then you moved over to Echo where, correct me if I'm wrong, it was strictly not-for-profits you were working for. Yeah, Echo was a for-profit endeavor, but we helped nonprofits do better fundraising. So what we helped them do was convert one-time uh, donors to monthly giving programs, which are a lot lower cost and far more profitable. Was that one of some of the most rewarding things you've ever done or the most rewarding part of your career, being able to take some of those charities or not-for-profits and turn them around financially? One definitely felt good about going into work every day. We knew that we were helping people. We knew that we were helping organizations. And that was an awesome feeling. And from there, you made your way to, uh, I don't know if it was Bell Media at the time, CTV. It was Simpatico. How did you land there? Yeah, I, I refer to it as CTV television. I think the longer term, I think, was ultimately Bell Globe Media was might have been the formal title. I got lucky. I was part of the team that launched MTV in Canada or relaunched MTV. And I, I, as I said earlier, I always had an interest in the entertainment category. And I got, frankly, quite lucky, manufactured luck, created an opportunity for myself so as to be part of the great team that launched MTV in Canada. Okay, that's a great point. You manufactured it. You created an opportunity. We hear that a lot in TED speeches or I mean, any lectures you can see up online or any LinkedIn posts, how did you create that opportunity? I had met an executive at CTV when I came back from my six-month travel experience. Um, met someone, was interested in working there. There were no jobs. Two years went by, and a posting for um, a senior position at MTV caught my eye. I wrote back to that individual having applied and that got me an interview with the then president at the time. We had a couple of meetings. Um, there wasn't really a job for me. The job that I had applied for was filled. And so I ended up meeting a couple of other people. And they were interested in my 
experience in my background and they said, we don't have a job. So I said, why don't I go away for a couple of weeks and why don't I come back to you with an analysis of what you're missing? And I did that. And then based on what I had put together, basically created, that's quite redundant. But when I came back, I was able to identify a number of gaps in their organization. And that led to a job being created based on the gaps that I had identified. So you did a bit of freelance free consulting work and then that got you into the position. Yeah, you could look at it that way. I didn't feel like I was giving anything away. I'm not trying to contradict you. I didn't feel like I was giving anything away. I figured that I had to sort of dig in a little bit and show them a couple things. I had to show them the way I thought. I I had to show them the value that I could add. And then I also had to show them what I legitimately felt were opportunities on their business and gaps that they needed to fill. Were you a big hand in uh, getting them to Masonic Temple? Because that was their home base. That was a big deal. No, they, my first, my first interview was at the Masonic temple. So they had, they had long been settled there. Um, my job entailed getting them increased distribution, um, on various, um, broadcasters, uh, working on rights clearances for TV shows and a bunch of other random stuff. Leading up to this role, you had gone away, uh, traveled for six months. You were doing your own thing. Your previous two gigs had both in the, been arguably in the agency world was it hard coming back and working for a big company again? Did you have to readjust to that? Because there are certain things that come with working with a big company that you don't have with a smaller organization. There were elements of that. You started to realize that you had to um, enroll a lot of people much earlier on. You couldn't just walk five feet over or talk to the president of the organization. The flip side was MTV was an incredibly entrepreneurial environment. As you said earlier, it was set up in its own unique location. So it was at the Masonic Temple, Um, there were elements that required us to coordinate with a lot of people. At the time, though, I was learning something brand new. I didn't have a lot of television experience, so I I was quite curious to talk to all these different people. But fundamentally, it was very entrepreneurial. It really felt like a startup within a very well-established company. And perhaps that was the best of both worlds. And I remember this was at a time before both MTV and Much Music were under the same umbrella. So there were certain restrictions as to how many or if any music videos could be played on MTV. And that was their bread and butter in the United States. You guys really had to rethink that model knowing that you had, say, Moses Neimer and his company in the background making sure you guys didn't deviate from your CRTC contract. Yeah, I mean, I think the credit goes to Brad Schwartz, who is the president at the time. And I think credit also has to go to um, the legal department who was able to figure out what was um, – possible in terms of the programming schedule and frankly all the programmers as well so i mean they they were very very creative within the license it was actually the old talk tv license that was repurposed for mtv and that's why there were no music videos allowed so it was in it was a talk license but you had some really creative programming you had some very smart legal people it was under brad's tutelage that they came up with the after show concept which I think ended up being a huge hit and was exported to the United States. So there were a lot of smart decisions made given the restrictions, and that ultimately meant that the business was successful, and I had nothing to do with that. So, so you're telling me that the after-show concept for, say, like The Hills or The Real Life, that came from Canada. That wasn't something that the Americans thought up. I think after-shows had existed pr- previously, but The Hills after-show started first in Canada, And it was Jesse and Dan who hosted that show. And it was those two folks that actually hosted the show in the U.S. So within 
uh, MTV, the after shows for the channel and those specific shows were started first here in Canada. From there, you moved on to Microsoft and you were working on the search business. A big deviation from helping launch MTV, a kind of young adult teen focused brand. What took you to Microsoft? I had always been interested in all aspects of marketing. You know, in startups, um, what they talk about is the full stack marketer. And in, invariably, when they talk about a full stack marketer, they're talking about search and social and marketing automation, things that oftentimes people don't do in very large companies. And I was. Um, effectively interested in becoming a full stack marketer. I had done brand marketing at Procter. I had done digital marketing, including acquisition marketing at AOL. I had worked on the agency side, so I learned a little bit about direct mail and call center operations. What interested me about Microsoft and Search was you had seen the success of Google, and there was so much traffic and so much business moving to Search that I figured one couldn't be a really good marketer without understanding Search, and this was an opportunity to learn Search from the inside out because at the time, there were really only three major search engines, Microsoft, Yahoo, and Google. There were some smaller players, but this, this was a chance to learn search from the inside out. Did you start Tap to Mobile right after Microsoft, or was there something in between? There were a, a few small experiments and consulting gigs in between, but effectively started Tap Mobile shortly after I left Microsoft. When did you get the idea that you wanted to go out on your own? Like, was this something that was sort of marinating for a while? Or did you just kind of one day wake up and go, I've got an idea and start laying the groundwork from there? I was a bit of both. I mean, you referenced Digital Day from last week. I, I have a problem not expressing my own opinions. Um, and really, I figured I would be best suited to try to go and take my call it 12 or so years of experience and apply it to an entrepreneurial venture. I figured nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I was interested in doing myself. You could say it was a proverbial itch that I wanted to scratch. What then kicked in was what business were we going to start? And ultimately we looked at the number of phones that were in the Canadian market, the amount of time that people were spending on those devices you know, and back when we started our business, mobile wasn't a focus really for media companies and for marketers. And we saw it as a great opportunity to build a business. I'm really interested in the process leading up to the launch. Like how much time do you spend thinking about it, working on it in the background before you actually say, okay, I'm going to quit my day job right now and I'm going into this full time to get it launched. Well, for anyone that's listening, I mean, my, my big belief is that fear is a wonderful motivator. I agree. Um, so, I mean, in our instance, it was probably about six months. As I said earlier, I was doing a number of different things. So I had a bit of a cushion, not much of a cushion. And ultimately, the decision that I made was that we just had to get into this full time. A couple things that we've learned along the way is one, you can only do one thing really well. And so we said, listen, if we're going to make this a success, we have to go in full bore. And I think the other thing that I've learned, which is maybe of no interest to your listeners is uh, the support of one spouse that applies for both me and my business partner. And I couldn't have started this business without my wife. I had her full support and that allowed me to dig in and spend as much time as I needed to make this business a success. Oh, I think even if it's not your spouse, any family members or friends backing you, that that's a big thing. And look at where you are today. You're on your fifth, sixth anniversary for uh, tapped mobile. What would you say? Uh, let's say we've been in business for five years. For five, you had to think about that. That shows us business has been going very well. You haven't had to count. <laughs>
Going back to the elevator pitch you gave us earlier, what would you say TAPS USP is? If you had to you know, pitch someone in the elevator what TAPS was, what would that look like? Uh, you're, you're exposing my weakness, Victor, because I suck at um, my elevator pitch. I, I said earlier we're good at connecting online and offline. We have a firm belief that mobile nudges the consumer. Um, people use their phones for so much throughout the day. What we're good at doing is figuring out solutions for marketers and for brands so as to take advantage of that. As I mentioned at Digital Day, most businesses are are in business to generate a profit. And how they do so is they sell more stuff and they generate more revenue. What we like to do is figure out, based on all of the what we say the goodness of the phone, how does someone take advantage of that in order to drive more revenue? And as I warned you, I don't have a good elevator pitch. I do think that most businesses are different. There are some obviously similarities within a category, but how one goes out and helps a bank versus an auto company versus an entertainment brand or a nonprofit is quite different at a tactical level. But you were very candid at Digital Day, very honest. That's something you don't see a lot of on these panels in front of 800 people. People are very diplomatic, very political. You spoke your mind. Do you find that that helps you in your business? I think it helps me and it hurts me. I think there's probably more detractors of me personally than there are fans. Um, but I, we- I disagree with that because when we were up there and you were speaking your mind, people were clapping and cheering for you after. No one was clapping and cheering for some of the others. I think I got lucky. Um, <laughs> so... I mean, what we believe fundamentally is that the lives of consumers are integrated and the marketing isn't. And the, 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 the motive of speaking my mind was that there isn't a publisher or a tech company in the world that can solve all of the problems for one brand or one business. So I am unapologetic and I am a firm believer that all media touch points are relevant the challenge for a brand is figuring out when to best use those touch points. We know radio works. We know out of home works. We know podcasts work. We know sampling works and we know direct mail works. The question is, who are you talking to and when are you talking to? And if you speak to a person too often, you might either be wasting your money or annoying the consumer. So the, the point that I was trying to drive home was that even though I loathe the term vendors or, or people or companies in the ecosystem need to effectively sit down with a brand, with an agency, i.e. a media agency, and figure out what role they all play in helping the ultimate um, campaign owner sell more stuff and make more money. And I think if people step back and see the bigger picture, they'll get a better sense as to what their role is in the ecosystem and they won't forever be trying to show up with coffee and donuts at media agencies or taking people out for lunch or away on trips in order to win their business because their clients aren't paying for that. The first three things you named there, I've been guilty of doing all those. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, we're in a business of building relationships, so I don't discount the various tactics in order to get in front of people. And if you do have clients that like donuts and cupcakes, then by all means, bring it for them. But hopefully they're working with you because, as you asked me earlier, they do something that they need. You do something that they need. You provide good service. You provide access to a property that they can't get anywhere else. You demonstrate that by working with you, you generate better ROI or a better return on ad spend. But frankly, if they're buying from you just because of the donuts and or the cookies, they obviously are very good cookies and very good donuts. One thing that you just mentioned was 
you offer something that no one else does in Canada and in, in the country or in the marketplace. And that's something that TAP does. Shazam, would you say that that's the one thing that you guys are known for more than anything else out of any of your other solutions? From a product standpoint, yes, that is the one thing that we are likely best known for. Tell us a little bit about Shazam. I'd like to assume everyone listening to this has it on their phone. I am, I, I'm yet to find someone other than my mom who doesn't. But still, tell us about Shazam and how it works with marketers or how marketers can leverage Shazam. Is there a way we can force people to download Shazam if they listen to your podcast? I can just grab everyone and shake them and make sure they've got it. Okay, great. Um, I think, you know, the 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 value of Shazam is, I think, in, inherent in what it does, and that is it offers a surprise and delight for consumers. Shazam has been around for over 15 years. It existed before the f- first smartphone. It was actually first a text messaging service, and I think – the reason why the brand is so valuable and so popular is because it gives consumers something. So originally, you wanted to know the name of a song, you pressed a button, you instantly got the song. Um, now it's evolved so as to be integrated in Siri and Snapchat. It is also partnered with the largest music streaming services. Its real value for brands is that it connects online and offline. It is. Uh, it offers brands the ability to Shazam enable TV ads, radio ads, print ads, and uh, unlock what we believe is the power of the phone for brands. Speaking of uh, unlocking offline media with Shazam, you guys or Tapped Mobile had a very big campaign about a year, year and a half ago with Corby Spirits. Just kind of give us the one-on-one on what that entailed. Yeah, Corby was one of our first large partners with Visual Shazam. And for those that aren't familiar, Visual Shazam enables a user to press down the camera icon within Shazam and then use the camera to scan printed materials. So in the case of Corby, it was neck hangers, it was posters, and it was other marketing collateral that had been um, printed. And what we did for Corby across a number of brands was give consumers the ability to unlock recipe content, view videos, um, learn more about their products, as well as enter contests and promotions across a number of brands. Charity's been a big thing uh, within your career. You and I uh, were chatting before we went live with this, and we talked about how the media industry shouldn't really be an industry. It's more of a community, and you can't really just think of your day job. You have to find ways to give back to really get something out of it. And you, sir, you volunteer at the Rogers Digital Media Zone, or the DMZ, or the DMZ, as people call it. Tell us what you do there. Yeah, I mean, the Ryerson Digital Media Zone is a really important part of the startup community in Toronto and in Canada. Um, it's, uh, wi- it's housed within Ryerson, and what it does is it helps startups get off the ground. It gives them space. It provides networking opportunities. It provides access to mentors. My involvement there over the last five years has been to, um, and I kind of use this in air quotes, um, help um, startups with marketing and with other sort of things that either I or Tap Mobile knows about and helps them ultimately be more successful at a critical point in their um, their career or the, the life of their company. Two more questions for you. The first one is, if you could go back in time and give your younger self, your younger entrepreneurial self, any advice, one piece of advice, what would you give them? This is pretty consistent and I spoke about it over the weekend. It's to learn how to code. I think you know, learning how to create take an idea and then go out and build it and create it is something that I would would have uh, done differently with the benefit of hindsight. I agree with that. We got to start 
treating it like a language. The same way we teach kids French, we've got to teach them how to code as well. Agreed. Final question. It's the one that I ask all of my guests. If you weren't in media, what do you think you'd be doing and why? I would be a talk show host. That's an aspirational comment. Um, and I think if I had studied harder, I probably would have been a doctor. But talk show host and or doctor. Chad, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Victor. That's it for today's show. But for more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching media people podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.